For the rest of you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing our march through the Beatitudes, one line at a time. Matthew chapter 5. For context, I'm going to read all the way through the section. Then I'll circle back and I will read again the text that we're going to be looking at and considering this afternoon. Beginning in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I wonder if any of you can recall a time in your life where you were hungry. Sometime in the past, you'd gone a season without. Maybe it was a deliberate season of fasting. You remember what it was like to have hunger pangs, and you remember the eagerness to fill your empty stomach with food. I wonder how many of you might recall a time when you were thirsty. If you were an athlete in here, for example, then no doubt you remember a time when you got that cotton mouth out on the field. It's as if all of the fluids in your body had drained out and you just longed to have a little bit of igloo water. Didn't matter how much it tasted like plastic. You can put your mouth right, you know what I'm talking about, Ryan Adams? Put your mouth right under there. You got to have it. You remember a time like that? Of what it meant to be hungry thirsty. It's a rather counterintuitive thing, isn't it? Because when we consider this, for instance, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they will be satisfied. That's the exact opposite of what's commended in our own world, isn't it? Think about professional athletes or, or those in their own professional lives are concerned with growing their upward mobility. No, to be satisfied is to head the wrong direction. You need to remain hungry. You need to keep thirsting for success. And so our world tends to inverse this idea. It's a bad thing to be satisfied. I can't ever be satisfied because if I'm satisfied, I'll grow lackadaisical. I have to keep pushing. I have to keep hungering for something more. And yet you and I know because... We were once part of this world and we still dip our toe in it due to lack of wisdom from time to time that, that the reason that we 
are so often dissatisfied and continue to hunger for more is because the more that we achieve fails to satisfy in the first place. It is a broken cistern from which we aim to drink and to be satisfied, but it can't do it. Jesus, in this remarkable opening to his famous Sermon on the Mount, is giving us a glimpse into the culture of the kingdom. That when you get around those who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you spend any amount of time around his people under his authority, shaped by his word and dwelt by his spirit, citizens of his kingdom, then what we find in these Beatitudes is something of the way that we are meant to sound and feel like. It is the vibe, it is the culture of the kingdom. And it's not a to-do list that you and I are ultimately to attain in order to enter into the kingdom. No, it is the gift of the kingdom. These things that we see here of being poor and of mourning and, and of being meek and of the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, these are actually God's gift to us on this side of the resurrection because all of them, as we'll see, as they relate to one another, lead us to Christ, center us on Christ, would have us hoping in Christ. And that's going to be true of verse 5 as well, or verse 6 rather. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want you to consider three things. I want you to consider a proposition, a posture, and a promise. A proposition, a posture, and a promise. Considering a proposition, I want us just to set the table by following Jesus' logic. Put your eyes there on verse 6 again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. I want you to notice here that the happy man, that's what it means to be blessed, to be happy, that the happy man does not hunger and thirst for happiness. The blessed man does not hunger and thirst for blessedness, though that is what our world and our own fleshly instincts would have us believe. It's to be in a mad dash for our own happiness and a mad dash for those things that will make our lives most blessed in the here and now. But notice that isn't what he says. No, the happy man doesn't hunger and thirst for happiness, nor does the happy man hunger or thirst for certain kinds of spiritual experiences. That hopefully the music at church this week will help me feel a certain way or Perhaps the Spirit of God might fall on me in such a way that would prove that I am in fact one of His children or, or whatever it may be. Notice, this person is not hungering. They don't thirst for any kind of subjective spiritual experience. They don't hunger and thirst for a certain kind of blessedness. Notice what it is that they hunger for, not happiness, but holiness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we need to consider, first of all, the logic of the verse itself. Blessed are those that 
hunger and thirst for righteousness. Only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who are blessed in this way. But we need to consider the logic of verse 6 in light of the logic of the verses that came before. You remember I've told you before that they're not just one-off phrases as if they're kind of pearls strung together on a string. There is a kind of organic relationship, one depending on the other. There's a logical order to it. We notice in verse 3 that those who are blessed are poor in spirit. They have been humbled by the grace of God. Having received a new heart through the Spirit of God, they see their sin for what it is and they are poor. They are humble. They're not haughty or proud. They have been humbled by the grace of God and only the humble inherit the kingdom of heaven. We notice in verse 4 how those who are poor in spirit are also given the gift of mourning. That is specifically the gift of godly grief over sin, that which leads to eternal life. And so verse 3 is the gift of conviction for sin. Then verse 5 is the gift of contrition for sin. And both conviction and contrition, both seeing our sin for what it really is and being sorrow for our, sorry for our sin in a godly way, these are gifts from God applied to us by His Holy Spirit. Naturally, those who are poor and who mourn see themselves ultimately as weak, as those who submit themselves to the benevolent Lordship of Christ. They do, they're not out of control. They don't use their own strength, their own power, their own might, and their own minds for their own glory, but they submit all things to Christ. They're meek. They're not weak, Meekness, you may recall from last week, is human power under God's authority, submitting itself to God's power and God's rule. Well, naturally, those who are poor in spirit and who mourn and who submit themselves to Christ as King are naturally going to hunger and thirst then for the very righteousness of God. Nothing else they know will satisfy them except for this kind of righteousness. And so the proposition that we are considering is namely this, that if you and I are to be happy, that if we would be blessed people, it is not because we hunger and thirst for happiness, rather we hunger and thirst for holiness. And that leads us to a certain kind of posture. And that posture is namely this, that you and I would crave righteousness, that we would crave righteousness. Now, that word righteousness there in verse 6, we see it all over the Bible, don't we? We see it most often used by the Apostle Paul. He uses it often in relationship to our justification. Now, if you are here investigating Christian things, that may be somewhat of a foreign word to you. What I mean by that is the Bible uses this language of justification in a legal sense, that all of us have sinned against an all-holy God. We have transgressed His law. As such, we are guilty before Him in His courtroom, as it were. But in Christ, who perfectly obeyed and who is obedient to the point of death, the very death that you and I deserved, that when you and I come by God's grace to put our trust in Him, the very righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift, though we be unrighteous. 
It is not something that we earn. It's not something that we grow. It's not something that's infused into us so that as we become more righteous, one day we might stand justified before God. No, it is the very gift of God from Jesus Christ himself applied to us such that we are, on the moment of believing, counted righteous before God. That is a glorious thing for sinners to consider. But I don't think that's really what's in focus in verse 6. Though righteousness certainly points to our being acquitted, forgiven, and counted righteous before God in a legal sense. No, I think it carries more of a sense of our sanctification. That is, of our being set apart for holy use, of our becoming more and more like Christ. And not only our sanctification, but it has in mind ultimately our glorification. That future day when Christ appears and we are gathered up with Him and sin is done away with once and for all and our struggle is over. When our sanctification gives way to glorification and we stand with Christ as those who have been justified. Now, to crave righteousness is only possible for someone who, in verse 3, sees his sin for what it is. Someone who is convicted of it, shows contrition for it in a godly way, and longs to be rid of it. Longs to not struggle anymore. Longs to be free of the temptation to sin. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. A righteousness that they in their mourning and they in their poverty recognize is not yet fully theirs. And the only thing that will satisfy is the riddance of sin once and for all. Good riddance. And so what does it mean then to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to hunger and thirst? The Bible gives us perfect illustrations. Psalm 42, 1-2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. I love that imagery. My soul thirsts for you. It's restless. I have a kind of spiritual cotton mouth until I find my satisfaction in you. My flesh faints for you. Spiritually speaking, I am weak and I am lightheaded. Until I find my nourishment in you. Because everything apart from you, the psalmist says, is a dry and weary land. And there is no water. There is no nourishment. There is no life. There is no growth. There is no fruitfulness. But all of this godly longing of the psalmist leads ultimately to a hopeful expectation in the Old Testament. Just listen to this, the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verses 8 to 10. And this is a prophecy given to Isaiah that he preached to Israel concerning the future faithfulness of God, both in restoring their fortunes and making them a light unto the nation through the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is ultimately a promise of the blessings that would come through the covenant of grace in Christ. 
And this is what it says. Thus says the Lord. Such a sweet phrase in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Take it to the bank. He says, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I'll just consider those two phrases. I have answered you and I have helped you. How has he done that? He says, I will give you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Now here, this is God's words to the Messiah, those whom he would give as a covenant. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. In other words, be free to those who are in darkness. Appear. You don't need to be in the dark anymore. Come into the light. He says, they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. Verse 10. And they shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. They will be satisfied. And yet here, as the Lord speaks to his servant, we know not, from Isaiah's perspective, who that servant is. In whom and through whom will the Lord God do these things? Rescue his people, satisfy them, though they hunger and thirst for righteousness. We see it fulfilled in the very words of Jesus, John chapter 6. Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, has fed 5,000. And in so doing, just as with all of his miracles, he is manifesting his glory. He is proving that he is God, truly God, the one who has shared in the Father's glory from before the foundations of the world. And in manifesting his glory, he takes a handful of loaves and he fills the bellies of 5,000, as such only the creator himself can do. And yet the crowd, their bellies full, go looking for him. They can't find him. They hop into ships, sail to the opposite side of the sea, looking anywhere for Jesus because they want more of that bread. But they don't really understand what it is that Jesus was doing. Just consider what Jesus says. Verse 22 in John 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Why are they seeking Jesus? Because they're hungry and they're thirsty. And when they found him, verse 25, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, that is, the multiplying of loaves into your bellies. No, you are seeking me for the Because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
And they said to him, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Pause. The same father that fed Israel in the wilderness from bread from heaven is the same father that fed you on that hillside with bread from heaven all to point you to the one true bread from heaven, the one whom he has ultimately sent. Verse 35, it's meant to point you to me. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me won't hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Isaiah said, they shall not hunger or thirst because the Father has answered the Son, because the Father has helped the Son, because the Father will give the Son as a covenant to His people. And in giving them as a covenant, or giving Him as a covenant to His people, all of the blessings of that covenant will be theirs, including His very righteousness. And those who hunger and thirst will not hunger and thirst anymore. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Because these are the ones who will be satisfied only with Jesus. Only with Jesus. Notice in Matthew 5 that here's the promise. We saw this Old Testament expectation. I long for you. I'm parched for you. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you, God. God promises, I will not leave you hungry and thirsty. I will satisfy you. And indeed, Christ is the yes and amen to all of God's promises as we just saw in John chapter 6. But here's the blessing that is promised to all of those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is nothing else in all of the cosmos that can satisfy your soul besides Jesus. This is what you have been created for, and this is what the very Holy Spirit of God has recreated you for. That hunger and thirsting for God, you would treasure Christ and feed on Christ and be satisfied by Christ alone. Incidentally, we experience this in part in this life, and yet we await its full consummation, but consider... Consider Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? 
And from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. It's the saints of God. Therefore, quoting Ezekiel 37, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The one sitting on the throne is Christ. And then he quotes Isaiah 49 that we were just in. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of living water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. By the one who sits on the throne and leads us as our shepherd. Christ alone satisfies. That's the promise. And so what, how do we know if we are those who hunger and thirst in this way? We might take, for instance, a Matthew 5, 6 test. Measure ourselves against it. Evaluate ourselves in such a way that we wouldn't ultimately be beating ourselves up, but it would lead us again to Christ in new and fresh ways, full of faith, asking Him to do in us by His Holy Spirit the very thing that we see here, make me hungry, make me thirsty, that I would long for nothing other than Christ. And so we'll consider this the Matthew 5, 6 test. I'm going to give you six questions, six diagnostic questions that I think are in one way or the other, rooted or flow out from verse 6. Number one, do I long to know Christ more? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long to know Christ. Consider Paul's words, Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as lost because of my surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that I might be joined to him forever. Do you long to know the righteousness of Christ in that way? I don't mean just know it in an intellectual way. I don't mean just know it in a kind of systematic theology way. I mean to know it in a kind of way that you would stake your very life on it. And in staking your life on it, take great risks for it. Often contrary to your own instincts. That in all of your enjoying of all the good gifts that God gives you, that all of your enjoying of those things would be an enjoying of Christ. That all of your boasting in those things would be a boasting in Christ. Such that we would have everything infused with the knowledge of Christ. All things in life in reference to Christ. Lord, over everything, not just this slice of my life, not just that slice of my life, not just my Sunday life, but all of life. Submitted to Christ 
and seen in reference to Him and His glory and His grace and His kingship? Do I long to know Christ more? How do we help one another do this? A few ways that we do this is is by reading and seeing the Word. The Apostle Paul says that that when we do this, when we teach one another and, and do so through singing in particular, then the very Word of Christ dwells richly in our hearts. You realize part of the reason that we sing the way that we do, Scripture saturated songs is so that we would not just know more about Christ, but that we would hunger and thirst for the knowledge of Christ. Tell me more. I want to know more. I want to experience more of that grace, of that mercy. So first, do I long to know Christ more? Second, do I crave God's Word? Do I crave God's Word? Psalm 19, 9-10, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than, they are, than, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Later on, Psalm 119, 10 times uses righteous or righteousness as a descriptor of God's word. Verse 7, I'll just give you a handful of them. Verse 7, Psalm 119, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 62, at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness crave God's word because God's word is righteous. That's what the psalmist says. Beloved, have you become apathetic to Scripture, to hearing it preached, to reading it, to meditating on it, to singing it? Have you forgotten how remarkable it is that you have multiple copies of God's inspired Word just lying around your house, or that you're a member of a church that is committed to preaching God's Word expositionally? Does all of that just kind of become ho-hum? Just another day and another week in the life of average Joe Christian. One of the dangers of the ordinary means of grace is that you and I might think that ordinary is not enough and that we fail to see that the way God accomplishes His extraordinary work of grace in our lives is through the most ordinary means the preaching of the word, the gathering of the church, the singing of the saints, and of prayer. Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorite comic strips. (laughs) So glad none of my kids were like Calvin. He was the absolute worst. Little punk. But this is what he says. Every once in a while he gets philosophical. And you realize Calvin's smarter than you are. This is what he says. In one frame, Calvin says, Getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. But when you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. Hobbes, his imaginary friend, the tiger, says, 
but everything you get turns into something that you have. When you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. Has God's word become boring? Have you taken for granted the very privilege of sitting under the preaching of the word each Lord's Day? Have you taken for granted the freedom that you have found in Christ to come to his word and find not condemnation but nourishment for your souls? Have you taken for granted that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Has it become ho-hum to you? Rote, boring, ordinary? Well, if that's the case, I wonder when our hearts grow that way if worldliness is our problem. Perhaps somewhere along the way, we've been duped into thinking that man really does live on bread alone. That those are the things worth pursuing. The bread that perishes. Those are the things that are worth purchasing. The things that cannot satisfy. And so... If that's you, and I know that's me from time to time, if our thoughts, efforts, and energy are all given to getting the bread that perishes, then maybe we need to circle back and consider the logic of the Beatitudes again. Because I will guarantee you that one who does not hunger and thirst for righteousness is one who likely in his heart is not humble but proud, does not see his ongoing need for Christ because of his sin, does not mourn over his sin but takes it lightly and overlooks it, and so has no need to come to this cistern for good news from God concerning Christ. What need do you have of God's word if that's you? So perhaps we need to pray, God, make me poor in spirit. God, make me one who mourns over my sin. Make me one who submits myself and all of my mind and all of my strength to your will. And make me one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because it's only in your word that I find Christ, the righteous one. Third, do I pursue personal holiness? Romans 6 tells us that when you and I were freed by Christ, we were not freed unto an absolute freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We were freed unto slavery. You say, how does that work? That we are now slaves of God. Paul says that you are freed unto slavery to God, free to become slaves of righteousness, whose bodies are now instruments or literally weapons of righteousness. So to be one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is one who longs to see all of his being made a weapon for righteousness in the world for the gospel's sake and the good of others. That's why the Apostle Paul tells his protege Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, hunger for it, thirst for it has to be the mark of your ministry. And now every man is imperfect in this way. I recognize that, including the one who stands before you. And yet, is this not what the great work that God has done in bringing us into union with Christ? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can those who have been united to Christ still live in sin? Those who belong to Christ belong to righteousness. Those who belong to the righteous Christ or those who long to be like Christ, to become more like Him, 
to think like Him and talk like Him and, and walk like Him, that we would live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Do I pursue personal holiness? Or is that just what varsity Christians do? Do I pursue personal holiness? Fourth, am I distressed by unrighteousness? Am I distressed by unrighteousness, specifically the unrighteousness that we see in the world? Consider 2 Peter 2.7. There we read about Lot, and he's described as righteous Lot. What made Lot righteous? It says that he was, quote, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Lot is called righteous because what has light to do with darkness? Ephesians 6. What has light to do with darkness? It's distressing to him. When he looks around and he sees sexual immorality, when he looks around and he sees an entire world united in rebellion against God, and he sees the utter carnage that falls out because of it, and he knows that he is one who will eventually suffer at some point for righteousness' sake, and yet he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Why? Because this is not what God has created the world to be. He longs to see the day when the glory of God fills the entire earth. Not sin, not sensuality, not wickedness, not lawlessness. And his soul will continue to hunger and thirst, will continue to be distressed and tormented as long as he lives among them. Because God forbid righteous Lot ever become apathetic toward it. God forbid righteous Lot ever look at wickedness in the world and think, sinner's going to do as sinner's going to do. You know you're growing in grace when unrighteousness and lawlessness in the world triggers your gag reflex. Not because it causes you or leads you to hate sinners. No, we love enemies. That's what Jesus says makes us perfect like our Heavenly Father who's perfect. We love sinners because Jesus came to save sinners. But we see what rebellion costs, and it's a high cost, and it distresses us. And so it should never be the case that we turn on the radio or turn on the news or, or read these articles that celebrate wickedness and transgression and think, well, that's just them. It should make us long and thirst for the day when the righteousness of God fills the entire earth like the seas. That's what we long for. Am I distressed by unrighteousness? Because if you're not, then it may be that you love the world a little too much. James 4 says those who are friends with the world ultimately make themselves enemies of God. So we need to be cautious and consider Lot's example. Trusting that just like Lot, God is able to deliver us from unrighteousness. Fifth, do I patiently endure my trials? 
Show of hands, how many of you have experienced trials? That's everybody. Don't lie. Do I patiently endure my trials, my tribulations, those hard things that come into my life so that God might train me and shape me? As a beloved son, you realize, the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, that the reason that you undergo these kinds of trials is because the Lord is disciplining you, just as Joel prayed earlier, and he disciplines us because he loves us. If he didn't do it, then it would be proof that you're an orphan, and God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. But indeed, God loves you, and like a good father, he trains us by disciplining us, and he does it often through trials. Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you long for a peaceful fruit of righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for a, a peaceful fruit of righteousness? You realize that the pathway between here and a peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life is discipline that sometimes is painful rather than pleasant. Financial difficulties, physical frailties, relational brokenness, those who stab you in the back, even the consequences of your own sin that you bear in your life and in your flesh until the day that Christ raises you incorruptible. In all of these ways, Christ trains us and teaches us weans us off of this world and away from ourselves and our pride into Christ. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for whatever means God has appointed to produce in me a peaceful harvest of righteousness. I don't like it. It's unpleasant. I don't know how long it's going to last, but Hebrews 12, 11, later, I know later, at some point later, this is what you intend to produce in my life. And so do you kick against your trials? Do you grumble against God? Do you gripe at Him? Do you get mad at Him? Do you sink into seasons of prayerlessness and self-pity? I do. You're not alone in that. And yet we need to entreat God by the very grace of Christ to make us those that so hunger and thirst for righteousness that we would Love the discipline of the Lord, though it may be unpleasant. Help me love it because of what it produces, not because of what it endures in a moment. Finally, six, do I hunger and thirst for my glorification? Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I want to see righteousness. I want to see it in the face of Christ. I want to see it in the abolishing of sin from my life and in the lives of all those whom I love. I want to see righteousness filling the whole earth as the water fills the seas. I want to see that. I long for that. 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me, Paul says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hunger and thirst for your glorification? Do you recognize that this world is not all there is? 
Do you recognize that your satisfaction of you're not hungering and you're not thirsting will not ultimately be found in anything in this world, but will only be consummated on that day when Christ appears in his glory and shepherds us in such a way that we hunger and thirst no more? Do you believe that? You long for that. The Apostle Peter says that those who lose sight of that, 1 Peter 1, are myopic. They're short-sighted. They've become so obsessed with their circumstances that they can't see beyond their circumstances to the hope of righteousness. And so he preaches the gospel to them. Again, I would remind you, brothers, of these qualities that the gospel produces. And those qualities are a forward-looking, hope-filled kind of life that might even be summed up this way as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So six questions. Do I long to know more of Christ? Do I crave His Word? Do I pursue personal holiness? Am I distressed by unrighteousness? Do I patiently endure my trials, and do I hunger and thirst for my glorification? Friend, this isn't a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is a call for you to return to Christ, to knowing Christ and treasuring Christ and longing for Christ as he's revealed in the word, to renewing, though it may be difficult at first, a life of prayer and of dependence upon him one of humility and of grief over sin, one that submits the whole of your life to the authority of Christ as one who is meek. Because this is the pathway to the kind of hunger and thirst that leads to the blessed life. This is what the gospel does. This is what Christ does in us. So friend, if you're visiting us and you're investigating Christian things, I just want to reiterate to you, as I said earlier, that what you read here, if you're reading along with us, is not a to-do list to gain acceptance with God. There's no amount of these things that you can do to outdo your sin. These are gifts that are given to you in Christ, whom you receive by faith alone and by nothing that you've done other than bringing to Him your sinfulness and your need. And so I would ask you, friend, did you come here today hunger, hungry and thirsty? Maybe you didn't know that it was for the righteousness of Christ that you were hungering and thirsting. But I assure you that it is. And I implore you today to hope in Christ. For you will be satisfied. Let's pray.